The sermon title is Just Desserts and Birth Wars. And I know you're looking at that and you're like, that's spelled wrong. No, that's actually spelled right. When it, the phrase just desserts, it's pronounced like desserts with two S's, but it's spelled like desert with one S. So there's English for you. It always makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> but I don't know if you've ever seen anybody get their just desserts. But you have to admit that humans find those stories very satisfying. Seeing someone get what they had been giving other people is, it just feeds our, our sinful human natures, doesn't it? We love it. We sing songs like, well, Carrie Underwood's Before He Cheats, with the lyrics, I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive, carved my name into his leather seats, I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights, slashed a hole in all four, four tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats, right? But I don't know if anything can match the angst of a song called I Hope by Gabby Barrett. Less, few, fewer of you will have heard these lyrics. I hope you both feel the sparks by the, by the end of the drive. I hope you know she's the one by the end of the night. I hope you never ever felt more free Tell your friends that you're so happy. I hope she comes along and wrecks every one of your plans. I hope you spend your last dime to put a rock on her hand. I hope she's wilder than your wildest dreams. She's everything you're ever going to need. And then I hope she cheats, like you did on me. And then I hope she cheats, like you did on me. A later part of the song says, I hope it goes, comes all the way around. I hope she makes you feel the same way about her that I feel about you right now. If that weren't a song about just desserts. I don't know what is. Those songs, they are catchy, and they may be even fun to sing sometimes, but praise God that the gospel is not about us getting our just desserts or our comeuppance. And however, God does discipline us. And we're going to see a story today about what I believe is God disciplining Jacob in a very ironic way. But we also need to remember that God's discipline is not about revenge or settling scores. It's about love and building character. So before we jump into this passage, let's pray. God, we pray that you would be with us this morning. Help us to receive from you. Help us to understand these stories that we're reading today and how they can apply to our lives and how vulnerable we are to the same problems that plagued our ancestors a long time ago. And Lord, we see a lot of repeated themes and a lot of repeated sins in these stories that we've been studying, but that's no different than our own lives. We know that we tend to repeat many things over and over until we finally wise up and let you sanctify us. But we pray, God, that we would come here willing to let you transform our minds and our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to start in chapter 29. Uh, first chunk we're going to read is verses 1 through 12. Jacob resumed his journey and went to the eastern country. He looked and saw a well in a field. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it because the sheep were watered from this well, but a large stone covered the opening of the well. 
The shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well and water the sheep when all the flocks were gathered there. Then they would return the stone to its place over the well's opening. Jacob asked the men at the well, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they answered. Well, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Jacob asked them. They answered, We know him. Is he well? Jacob asked. Yes, they said. And here's his daughter Rachel coming with his sheep. Then Jacob said, Look, it's still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. Water the flock, then go out and let them graze. But they replied, Well, we can't until all the flocks have been gathered and the stone is rolled from the well's opening. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter Rachel with his sheep, he went up and rolled the stone from the opening and watered his uncle Laban's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. He told Rachel that he was her father's relative, Rebekah's son. She ran and told her father. So we begin with Jacob leaving the land of Ur, which he had to do because his brother Esau wanted to kill him for stealing their father's blessing. And though Esau's threat was the motivation for this journey, finding a wife was his goal. And there are a lot of parallels in this story with other previous stories in this family. And the first is the well. If you remember before Abraham sent his servant to go find a daughter for Isaac and he found Rebekah and the first place that he came to was a well. And at this well that Jacob comes to, he finds some shepherds sitting around, which seemed to him to be laziness. He thought they should have already watered the sheep and had them out grazing. He didn't understand that the custom of that group was to gather all the herds together first before they watered the sheep. And this custom appears to be because the well was covered. They kept it covered with a large, heavy stone that possibly took a team of people to remove and and to put back on. And much to Jacob's pleasure, it was Laban's daughter coming at just the right time, giving him an opportunity to show off. Because apparently, Jacob went up to that stone and took care of it himself. So I don't know if he was just a lot stronger than the other guys, or willing to work harder, or if God gave him a special burst of strength. But he strutted up there, did his macho thing, and showed Rachel that he was the man. And then he probably grabbed his back and said, Oh, that was a bad idea. You see, that's why he started crying. He was like, Ah, Rachel, I shouldn't have done that. I was just trying to impress you. No, I'm just kidding. But it was an interesting transition from hulking out to then crying. And he must have felt overcome with God's provision for his journey, leading him right to who would become the woman of his dreams. But we'll move on to verse 13 through 20. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son Jacob, he ran to meet him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then he took him to his house, and Jacob told him all that had happened. Laban said to him, Yes, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him a month, Laban said to him, Just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and the younger was named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he answered Laban, I'll work for you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban replied, better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. This is where we can start seeing some differences 
between the previous story of Jacob's servant coming, because Jacob's servant came with the bride price, right? And he was able to just take Leah immediately. Jacob came with nothing. So he couldn't come and, and leave with the bride very quickly. And he, he needed to work. And he wanted to work for Rachel, the younger daughter that he loved and apparently found more attractive. And he worked seven years from, for her, which seemed to him but a few days. So up to this point, we're looking at a really nice romantic movie. And it's got a lot more heart than the fleeting romance stories of today in a world filled with casual hookups and a resistance to marriage and tons of divorce. It's nice to see a story about a guy really going all in and committing and this couple resisting their urges for seven years. The culture was set up to encourage commitment and discourage fleeting romance and divorce, right? I mean, the, the bride prices were really high. So for, if a guy wanted to get married, he had to really go all in. This was a big commitment. This wasn't something you just do on a whim with somebody you meet on vacation. It's kind of like Elon Musk trying to find somebody to take over as CEO of Twitter. There's plenty of people who would love that job, but he said there's one catch. You got to invest your life savings in Twitter. <laughs> and he said they've been on the fast track to bankruptcy for a while. So it's one thing when the attitude is, yeah, sure, what do I have to lose? It's another thing when there's a lot on the line. And if Jacob's love for Rachel didn't have legs, he was going to lose seven years of hard work. Our culture could use some of those barriers to, to getting married. We, people treat marriage more and more like dating as time goes on. But So far, this, though, is shaping up to be a really romantic flick. But it's about to turn into a soap opera. Then Jacob said to Laban, since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. That evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. When morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, what have you done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Laban answered, It is not the custom in our country to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete this week of wedding celebration, and we will also give you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. And Jacob did just that. He finished the week of celebration, and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. And Laban gave his slave Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Well, if you weren't familiar with this story before, I bet you didn't see that coming. How could you? It's hard to even make this stuff up. And your first question is probably like, how? How could you possibly not know that it was a different woman? Well, I think there's three elements most likely at play making this possible. First of all, Leah was very likely wearing a dark veil during the ceremonies and the festivities during the the daytime, and so that would have concealed her identity throughout that period. And second, the veil was probably not removed until they were in the bedroom afterwards, and it would have been very dark and stayed dark probably throughout the night. And it's possible those are the only two things needed for this ruse to work, but I think there's probably one more. That's where the wine comes into play, <laughs> right? Kind of reminding us of Lot with his daughters, most likely Laban got Jacob as inebriated as possible to pull this off. Of course, Jacob was infuriated, and rightfully so. However, I wonder if the irony 
dawned on him as he let his anger out on Laban. Right? If he, I wonder if he realized that he was on the receiving end of the very same measures that he previously deployed on his brother Esau. You know, like, what, Jacob? Are you asking why someone would pretend to be someone else in order to trick them and cheat them? Hmm. It's a really good question, Jacob. Have you thought about that? <laughs> I mean, have any of you ever had those moments when you're, you know, complaining or getting onto someone or calling somebody out for something, and then in the middle of doing that, things start to come together in your head and you realize that you've done the exact same things that you're complaining or angry about. And it's not a fun realization when that happens in the moment. This is the just desserts portion of the sermon title. It's hard to read this without thinking of Luke 6, 31 and 38. Verse 31 says, do to others as you would have them do to you. Verse 38 says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So Jacob is receiving back the measure that he used on his own brother. Now don't misunderstand what's happening here. We are not New Agers with an unbiblical worldview who point to karma being the culprit for things like this. This is not karma this is God's discipline, I believe. Kent Hughes put it this way, Although Jacob was the elect son, he did not escape the consequences of his own sins. Far from being immune to discipline, God's children are the object of special discipline. He's right. Scripture backs that up. Revelation 3.19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. There's a lot of scripture actually about discipline. A lot more than what I'm sharing with you today. And it all makes it abundantly clear that the discipline of God flows from the love of God. And it's not just God's discipline either. Like we are called to discipline others in the same manner that God disciplines us in many ways and respects. We can see this most notably in scripture's teaching about parenting and church discipline. And we're also supposed to have self-discipline. And the point of disciplining ourselves, our kids, or our churches is not punishment for punishment's sake, right? It's for repentance and righteousness. Hebrews 12, 11 says, for the moment, all discipline seems not to be pleasant, but painful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the point of discipline. God didn't just want to use Jacob to build a people. He wanted to build Jacob into a righteous person. And I know that I've preached a lot about how we should be prepared for suffering and hardships in life and that we cannot escape suffering by living a holy life. However, I wouldn't want you to think that that means all of our suffering and difficulties are always completely unavoidable, and what I would call common suffering or even righteous suffering, because sometimes God is disciplining us 
because we are not where he wants us to be and it takes his discipline to get us there. It's just like with children. My children suffer for many different reasons. Sometimes they suffer just because they are kids in this world. That's it. They're just human beings in this world. Sometimes they suffer as a direct consequence of their own bad choices. No discipline necessary. Don't touch the stove. They touch the stove. They're going to get burned. They're going to hurt. They're going to suffer. And discipline wasn't even necessary for that suffering. But sometimes they suffer because we discipline them. Because we know that an undisciplined child will be spoiled. And that won't be good for them in the long run. It won't bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And they certainly won't be prepared to follow Christ later in life. Now the question that's not always easy to answer though is, well, how do we know if God is disciplining us? Or if it's something else? If it's just a part of life? That's not always easy to answer. It depends on the circumstance. If you're being removed from the membership of a church because of a habitual, unrepentant sin, well, it's pretty easy to point to God's discipline. The church is doing what they're supposed to, practicing discipline on you. That's the Lord using them to discipline you. But even if it's not as severe of a situation, we can also point to God's discipline if we can also point to clear patterns of sin in our lives that we're not taking appropriate action against. Right? For instance, it's not infrequent to come across self-professing Christians who are neglecting church and disciple-making, right? They're not living according to their purpose and their mission that Christ has given them, being actively disobedient to the Bible's commands about being a part of the body of Christ. So in those situations, we're not talking about what people would label as these deep, dark sins. We're talking about complacency, right? Being lukewarm, and God doesn't like lukewarm. And I'll see those lukewarm Christians constantly struggling in life. Sometimes, maybe relationally, vocationally, emotionally, or financially. And I look at those situations and I'm like, well, yeah, that makes sense. You know, God should be disciplining you. And it's not always about being lukewarm. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is leading us, is convicting us about some sin in our lives, and we're just refusing. We're putting up walls and barriers. We're hardening our hearts. And God comes along and disciplines us. Here's the thing. In those circumstances, you should be more concerned if you're not being disciplined. Because he says he disciplines those he loves. And if you're his child, genuinely his child, you should be concerned. If you can walk in disobedience and not ever experience the discipline of God. And to be honest, sometimes I pray, when I'm praying for those people, those self-professed Christians, and it's stuck in, in that cycle, sometimes I pray that things would keep going bad for them. That, that it would maybe even get worse until it brings them to repentance. Right? So that then they can clearly see the bad fruit of disobedience and hard-heartedness and complacency compared to the good fruit of repentance and righteousness. Now, things do get a lot more complicated, though, if we're talking about, well, maybe, I feel like maybe God's disciplining me, but I can't point to, and my brothers and sisters in Christ can't point to any patterns of sin, you know, that, that we can see. And it's in those instances where we really have to rely on the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, 
you know, there's many times in life when I'll sit down and I'll think, well, God, you know, are you disciplining me or is this just a part of life? Is this just a part of the job, you know? And I'll have to open that conversation up with God in prayer, listening to the Holy Spirit, trying to sense, okay, is there something that you're leading me to change in my life? God, is there, is there something that you want me to do? You know, and, and he works in those ways. And sometimes yes and sometimes no. But I'm telling you, if you sense that there's a good change that God is leading you to make in your life, then just do it. Right? Like, it's better to err on the side of making positive changes than just assuming everything is fine and God's not disciplining you. Because I guarantee you, we all need to make positive changes. We have to keep doing that our whole life. We don't ever just arrive and get to plateau. And so God always wants us to keep making changes to our attitudes, to how we spend our time, how we use our resources, our zeal for the lost, and so forth. So we had the just desserts, but we're going to have to move on to the birth wars. When the Lord saw that Leah was neglected, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, and named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, the Lord heard that I am ne neglected and has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, At last, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne three sons for him. Therefore, he was named Levi. And she conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. Well, this is sad. It's sad because Leah, the situation that she's in, she has a husband who loves another woman more than her. Of course, she should have kind of expected something like this to happen. She did participate in a ruse to trick him into marrying her. It's not a great way to get a marriage started. But it's still sad. And God blessed her with children. And she kept thinking, okay, that's going to win Jacob's heart for me. And so you can see in the first three, Reuben means see a son. Simeon means to hear. And Levi means attached. So the names of her first three sons reflected her thought that having these boys was going to win Jacob's heart. But eventually she realized, well, that's, that's not happening. And so the fourth son, Judah, his name means praise. You see, Leah had two problems. One was her husband loved his other wife more than her. And two was she dwelled on problem number one too much. <laughs> Sometimes that's one of our problems, right? And finally, when Judah came around, she decided to stop pouting and just praise the Lord. A grateful heart is healing. I think we can see that she finally practiced some thankfulness. And it helped with her attitude. I'm not saying that it took her marital problems away, but it helped Leah's attitude a lot to stop thinking about what she did not have and start focusing on what she did have. And she had a lot to be thankful for. She had four sons. And she didn't know this, but it was through her sons that the priestly and kingly lines of Israel would come, including the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. 
We could all use a little of that shift in attitude, right? It's easy to dwell on what we don't have. I don't own a home. I don't have the nicest minivan. I don't have my parents or sisters or brother around here. I don't have a retirement fund. I don't, my country doesn't have a balanced budget. It's easy to focus on what we don't have. You know, you can fill in with your own things. And you can imagine how that could trap a pastor's mind with his church or how it collectively could trap us into thinking about what we don't have. But where is that attitude going to get me? It's not going to get me anything except a complaining, worrying, and depressed heart. But if I focus on what I do have, well, that changes things. See, it's hard to be depressed and thankful at the same time. It's hard to complain and praise at the same time. If there's a way, we'll find it. But it's hard. So be thankful for what you do have. Focus on that, not what you don't have. We have a lot to be thankful for, especially if you, are a, if you have been saved by Christ. That's really all you need. Move on to chapter 30 now. Verse 1, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. Give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. Well, you can imagine how that <clears throat> conversation could go. All of this shows us some of the downfalls of polygamy, right? Like one wife is longing for love and one is longing for children. There are so many ways polygamy goes wrong, even besides the fact that it's wrong to begin with. So just so we're clear, polygamy was never God's desire or design. From the very beginning, he made Adam one Eve, right? Not two. And marriage was designed to where two people, one man and one woman, become one flesh. God, there's nowhere that God ever condones polygamy. It was just something that happened because of man's sinfulness. Just so we're clear on that. So let's see how you guys are thinking, how would I respond if my wife said, give me sons or I will die? Well, Jacob became angry with Rachel and said, am I in the place of God? He has withheld offspring from you. Then she said, here we go. Here's my maid, Billa. Go sleep with her and she'll bear children for me so that through her, I too can build a family. So Rachel gave her slave Bilhah to Jacob as a wife, and he slept with her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel said, God has vindicated me. Yes, he has heard me and given me a son. So she named him Dan. Rachel's slave Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Rachel said, in my wrestlings with God, I have wrestled with my sister and won. And she named him Naphtali. Well, here we go again. You ever feel like you have generational curses in your family. <laughs> you know, we know that some things are passed on through genetics, some, some things in, in families, but, you know, telling people that your wife is your sister and having your servants sleep with your husband can't be blamed on genetics. That's just sin. Not that we can blame any of our sins on anything, but the interesting thing here is that Rachel believes that God is blessing her for her sin. That's what she thinks. And of course, I preached very recently and made it clear that just because we are seeing what we would label as good fruit, good results, doesn't mean that God is blessing us. 
because results do not equal blessings. There it is again. Another repeated theme. I was reading a, a story last week from the Christian Post about a megachurch pastor who was saying that if Christians don't evolve in the way they engage culture on issues such as abortion, sexuality, and recreational drugs like marijuana, megachurches might soon become a thing of the past. He said, and, and I quote here, for me to tell 16-year-olds to be celibate is one thing. A 37-year-old who's used to getting some, I need a different kind of gospel. Yeah. He went on to talk about even the idea of growing marijuana on church property so that he could get young black men into the church. And the pastor was black, by the way. But he went on to say, quote, again, we've got to repackage or, listen to this word, repurpose or else we are getting ready to witness the death of megachurches. And the problem is, <laughs> don't see a problem there. Um, Arizona Christian University, who I mentioned a couple weeks ago, ago, who has the Cultural Research Center that does a lot of the surveys on biblical worldview, they did a survey amongst uh, pastors, Christian pastors, and found, well, this is sad anyway, but 42% of pastors in churches of 250 or less in attendance had a biblical worldview, which that's horrible anyways, but think about this. Of the pastors of churches 200 and over 250 in attendance, it was 15%. So you think that results equal blessings? You better think again. God does, like I've said before, I believe that he blesses and rewards righteousness and faithfulness. But we better not jump to any conclusions like Rachel did. And she wasn't the only one. Leah had the same problem. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her slave Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. And she named him Gad. When Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, Leah said, I'm happy that the women call me happy. So she named him Asher. Reuben went out during the wheat harvest and found some mandrakes in the field. When he brought them to his mother Leah, Rachel asked, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah replied to her, isn't it enough that you have taken my husband? Now you also want to take my son's mandrakes? Well then, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come with me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So Jacob slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my slave to my husband. And she named him Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. God has given me a good gift, Leah said. This time my husband will honor me because I have borne six sons for him. And she named him Zebulun. Later, Leah bore a daughter and named her Dinah. See, Leah has the same problem as Rachel. She saw Rachel get results with her unrighteous plans, and she says, well, that worked for her, so I'm going I'm to do that too. And it might be tempting for us when we see other people benefiting or profiting off of sin, unrighteousness, 
But I'll tell you, they won't benefit or profit off of it when they stand in front of Jesus' judgment seat. Three times in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, he was addressing um, the righteous acts of religious hypocrites, right? Not really righteous. And he was telling his followers not to be like these, these dudes. And three times in that chapter, he says, they have their reward. You see, there are rewards for sin. If people tell you there's no rewards for sin, they're lying to you. There are rewards for sin, but the problem is those rewards lead to destruction. And they don't carry over into heaven. Now, the mandrake thing. So back then, people incorrectly believed that mandrakes would help with fertility. right? So that's the whole thing going on there. And this is ironic because Rachel thinks that she's getting one over on her sister and getting something that's going to help her have children. But it ends up backfiring because her sister gets pregnant that night. And again, Leah thinks God is rewarding her for her sinful activity, but that is not the case. It says Leah says that God rewarded her, but the only thing we are told is that God listened to her. You see, God does not reward sin, but he does reward sinners. He doesn't really have any other choice if he's going to reward anybody. He's got to reward sinners. In his marvelous mercy and grace, he does still look down on us with love and compassion, which he did with Leah. Of course, this is never an excuse or a reason to sin because we also know that God disciplines his children. I don't recommend going through that discipline. If you can avoid it, you're better off with righteousness. But we can also be thankful that God still has mercy on us whenever we stray. And he did it with both of these ladies. In the end, final verses of the chapter, Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son, and she said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add another son to me. In the end, God also rewarded Rachel, who was sinful as well. Finally, she had a child, and this child, Joseph, would become an important part of God's story. Although that whole favoritism thing that Jacob and Esau had to go through with their parents is going to rear its ugly head again in this family. But I really do hope that it is rewarding for you to walk through these stories with me. I, for me, this has been a fulfilling experience to begin preaching week in and week out through these stories and, and finding new ways to how to teach them and how to apply them to our lives and how to extract things that God is trying to show us, especially as we're seeing a lot of repeated themes. And I, what I hope that it will also do for you is show you how important it is to study God's word and give you the tools necessary to go home and read it at home and, and, and ask questions and extract things and figure out how to apply it to your life because you need more than just these sermons. Today, we were able to take a deeper look at how God disciplines us, which was a helpful addition to the other teachings that I've been doing on suffering and hardships you see, humans are always looking for simple answers to complicated questions. And whenever we start to suffer or go through hard times, it's not always easy to figure out why or what's going on. 
Sometimes it's just life. Sometimes it's a direct result of our own stupidity. And sometimes God is lovingly disciplining us so that he can grow our character and our endurance. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Praise God for His discipline. We know, we're seeing in society what happens when children go undisciplined. We get to see the results of that and praise God that He does not do that with His children. He is a good father. Bad fathers reward bad behavior. But God does not do that. But He does love sinners. And that is something that we can be eternally grateful for. And a grateful heart is a healing heart. Gratefulness will heal your heart. And there's nothing that we could ever be more grateful for than being saved from our sins by faith, by grace, through faith in Christ Jesus alone. And so if you have pain in your heart today, I recommend 25 milliliters of thankfulness, two hallelujahs, and one amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for a wonderful day of worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, we want to pray. We want to lift up those as, as we were learning about. Those who are real brothers and sisters who are maybe backsliding or being complacent or lukewarm. God, we, we've, we all know people like that and there may be some of us here that are realizing that's us. And Lord, it would be amazing to just see them just turn. Just turn and repent and, and give everything to you, Lord. Go all out for you. But we also know that you discipline those that you love. And we pray that your discipline would be effective in our lives. And if it takes more and more discipline, then... We welcome more and more discipline as long as it'll get us where you want us to be. And that can be a hard thing to swallow. We go through discipline with our parents, hopefully as children, but then we grow up to be adults and we're like, hey, we thought we'd left that behind. We grew out of that. We don't need that discipline stuff anymore, but that's not the case if we're going to follow Christ. So we pray that we would be open and receptive that our hearts would not grow harder, calloused, desensitized to what you're doing in us, but that we would recognize what you're doing and have faith. Even if you're calling us to do something that's difficult, even if you're calling us to do something that we don't understand, Lord, that we would have faith and trust you. And God, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't have faith in the, in the real Jesus, that doesn't have genuine saving faith, Lord. Maybe there's times when we just, we believe something, we acknowledge something, or maybe we think that we're Christians because we grew up in a Christian family or whatever reasons it may be. God, I pray that no one would leave here without truly knowing you and being known by you by repenting and 
putting you in the position as the Savior and Lord of their life. And God, thank you for a new year. And we also thank you that you make us new creations. So help us to be a new creation. In Jesus' name, amen.